All right, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us on this holiday weekend. Uh, appreciate you being here as we continue our series talking about our values and the way that we desire to live as a result of who we are in Jesus. I did want to say just a couple quick things um, about the Monday Memo. Really excited about just another avenue to try to help keep people in the loop and to communicate with one another in a time where communication can be difficult. So that info at rootedchurch.com email, uh, that goes directly to Amanda, and that's one of the things that she's going to be helping us with. So if you are a ministry leader, if you're involved in something and you want to get information out to the people in our church about that, it, by 8 o'clock on Sunday night, if you would email info at rootedchurch.com, that'll go to Amanda, and when she puts that memo together to send to everybody on Monday, uh, she'll have the information she needs. If you currently get emails from Rooted Church when I send out announcements or any of the COVID updates or things like that, then you're already on our list. But if you haven't got things like that, then email info at rootedchurch.com so that Amanda can add you uh, to that list. With that being said, um, a part of that Monday memo, what we want to do is help communicate ways that folks are serving. On Sunday, Kara does a great job of scheduling and setting all of that up for us. And in order to help her and then to help Amanda with sharing out, sending out that information, if you would just make sure to confirm, like Kara plant schedules all that out, and then you go on Planning Center and confirm yay or nay that you, you accept that role and will be serving that day. So if you're able to do that and you are confirmed, then we'll be able to add into that Monday memo who all is going to be serving this next week so that every, we're all on the same page on that. So with that said, uh, we're going as we seek to simplify our communication streams and just simplify uh, the way that we do some things, we're going to be talking this morning about the simplicity of the gospel. And what I hope that you walk away with ultimately this morning is this, the reality that life becomes simple when one thing clearly matters the most. Simplification comes as that which is ultimately of most importance becomes of most importance. This morning, Rob read you a verse from 2 Corinthians. It was uh, from chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to be doing something a little different this morning. I'm primarily going to be talking about one verse, but I want to give you some background on the entire letter of 2 Corinthians in order that we can understand fully the weight of this one verse. I'm going to read you that one verse again, and then I'll pray, and we'll talk about the context. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel that gives us reason to sing, that gives us reason to praise, that gives us reason to live and lay down our lives and to wake up each morning. Lord, I pray that the hope that we have in Christ might be the prevailing passion of our lives. Would you take our earthly deeds and our energies and our investments, all the, all the gifts that you've given us, and would you, Holy Spirit, lead us that we might steward them for your glory here in this place and in the places that you call us to? We ask these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul makes this claim of, of what his boast is, and he makes this to the church in Corinth. So I want to tell you a little bit about the church in Corinth. 
Paul planted this gospel community during one of his first missionary journeys. This was in Acts 18 that it tells us about this. We know that he went to Corinth and he started this work and he was there for about 18 months establishing that work. And after planting this work, he moves on to Ephesus. And he would spend three years planting, starting the church in Ephesus. And during his first year in Ephesus, Paul gets some discouraging news. Things were not going so well in Corinth. There were multiple things going on. Corinth was, as an 18-month-old new church, Corinth was a train wreck with all kinds of issues. People were divided over which leader was most popular. People in the church in Corinth, some of them were really drawn to Peter and some Paul and some Apollos, and so they're kind of divided over which leader was the best and which camp that they were involved in. We still struggle with this today as a Christian community whose team we're on. And Paul refutes this by ultimately saying, were you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, we're all servants of Jesus. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians. They were having they had sexual issues in the church in Corinth, like to the point there's a guy living with his stepmom. So, you know, there's the, the gathering is starting to have, bring out some philosophical complications. The gathering became extremely charismatic. There were some that were speaking in tongues and praying out and sharing a word from the Lord loudly in the midst of the gathering. And these things weren't necessarily bad, but they were causing a lot of chaos and confusion, especially amongst those who were visiting this new community. And so Paul just kind of questions the church, like, just because something's good, if it's causing our, our brother to stumble, is it ultimate? There's also the, the letter in 1 Corinthians is just addressing a lot of things that are happening in the church and seeking to provide some godly wisdom. It's not a real long book. I'd encourage you to read it. And so Paul writes this first letter to the church in Corinth, and it actually wasn't received that well. Many in the church were already frustrated with Paul, and they were offended by his letter, and they rebelled against his authority. And after 1 Corinthians, we see that that kind of caused even more of a stir in this young church. And so 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1 tells us that in response to this crisis, Paul had come and met with the church, and he calls this a painful visit. And we don't know a whole lot about that visit other than he calls it a painful visit. And he indicates that he sent another letter before 2 Corinthians that he says was written in anguish and tears. And so there are a lot of difficult things going on in the church. Paul seeks to speak into those. And it caused a lot of tension and difficulty and division in this young church for a season. And in response to this letter uh, yeah, and, and the visit that he made, it seems that the body has mostly apologized to Paul and that they desire to be reconciled and that some healing is beginning to happen. And thus, the point of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is seeking to assure the church of his love for them and he defends his commitment to them and ultimately his commitment to the gospel above all else. And so as we consider all of these circumstances, the obvious question that rises to the surface is why did the church reject the authority of Paul in the first place? What was it that led to this struggle and pushback on Paul? What changed from the time Paul started this work, people came to know Christ through the work that God did through Paul, and something had changed over time? And as you read the book of 2 Corinthians, it becomes clear the things that had changed. You discover that the church had decided they did not view Paul as a credible leader any longer because he didn't meet the standards of the world. 
This is roughly 55 AD. So it's been half a century since Christ walked to the earth. And the people of God seem to have forgotten the one who Paul walked in the shoes of. They forgot the implications of the life of Jesus and how he lived and the reality of that. And they began to be drawn to more earthly leadership tendencies. They had been influenced by others who had come along in Paul's absence. As soon as Paul left for Ephesus, others sought to come and discredit and move in and take advantage of the work that was taking place. These were men of wealth and stature. And we can, we can discern from Scripture that they had great speaking abilities and they were manipulative with their words and with their teaching. And as the people began to compare Paul to these men of stature and influence, he began to look less impressive. A few things that we see specifically that Paul points out were said against him. He wasn't an impressive public speaker. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, Paul defends this saying, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Note, there's some divine sarcasm. Sarcasm can be used to the glory of God in the right context. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Those who deceive and stray from the gospel are often extremely elegant in their approach. Men and women who simply want a following tend to know how to get it because the recipe for gathering a following, for getting people to like you, is not all that complicated. This appears that Paul's speaking ability was not his primary gifting. And number two, he defends he had very little money. He did not have that which the world ultimately valued the most. In 11.7, he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. While Paul helped to start the church in Corinth, he raised outside support to be able to serve them well. And additionally, he worked another job. He did manual labor on the side to subsidize the support that he received because Corinth wasn't in a place to meet those needs. And while this was okay, and I'm sure the church even rejoiced in this at first, over time, this way of living that Paul was living became offensive to the church because it wasn't a picture of the way that they themselves wanted to live. They wanted their faith to accompany wealth and privilege. And this, you know, Paul who's out doing manual labor and kind of doing this on the side, like it didn't look as impressive as these men of grandeur who came and stood before them. And then number three, he was under regular persecution. Paul's preaching and writing did not tickle the ears of the community. He spoke truth, and because of this, he was often spoken of poorly by other religious leaders, including those who were kind of moving in on this young, influential body. They sought to convince the church that Paul was not really credible. And we see this when in chapter 3, Paul responds to the church asking him for some kind of letter of recommendation from the other apostles. They ask for this in response to the seeds of doubt that had been sown in them by the murmurings of other community teachers who were offended by Paul's ministry. 
Paul had started this work. These people had come to know Christ through them, and yet the, the people kind of come to this place of, well, maybe we need, maybe you need more than the authority of Christ. Can we get like a letter from somebody? And Paul responds to that. He's under just regular persecution. So lack of money, lack of natural speaking ability, constantly having outsiders, you know, religious leaders say these negative things about you. All of a sudden, the church in Corinth is like, maybe this isn't our guy. This certainly is not the life we want to live. And as the church observed all that Paul lacked, they became ashamed of the simpleness of Paul. He didn't reflect what they wanted for their own lives. They came to a point that every believer comes to where the values of the world clash up against the ways of Jesus because they stand as polar opposites. That which the world values is not the same as that which Christ values. And every Christian comes to a juncture where they decide what means more to me. What defines success in my life? Is it success or is it faithfulness? And Paul desires to show the church that they have elevated these men and their minds based on the world's values. The things they ultimately value in their lives did not reflect Christ's life. And Paul gets pretty detailed in explaining why these super apostles are not all that impressive in comparison to the glory of Christ. And he begins his defense by declaring where his boast is found. And again, that's the verse we're going to spend most of our time on today. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. He says our boast these super apostles have all these things they boast in. They boast in their wealth and their ability and their following and their podcast listens and their books sell, all these things, whatever it is. And Paul says, our boast is much different than that boast. Our boast, our claim that we stand on, and he says, is the testimony of our conscience. That our, our conscience, our soul, like there's a, it testifies of something. And our conscience can ring true and testify of that which is true because confidence is found in godly pursuits that flow from a gospel identity. And so Paul can stand firm in the midst of criticism. I guarantee you that as painful as it was to wake up bloody with a pile of stones around you and then to end up in prison shortly after, it had to be much more painful the constant arrows and attacks he took from those who claim to be people of Jesus. But Paul can stand firm in the midst of both kinds of attacks because his boast is the testimony of his conscience, that he's been faithful to the things that which God has called him to. And he gets specific about that. He tells that the testimony of his conscience is that they have behaved in the world with simplicity. Some translations of the Bible use the term holiness there. But what's implied here is that Paul's life has been simply built around the truth of the gospel and nothing else, resulting in a life of, of the constant pursuit of holiness. The world equates legitimacy with wealth and possession. And honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably all guilty of falling into that to some degree, that way of thinking. I'm going to guess most, most of your favorite Twitter followers are not 
are, are folks with a lot of wealth and possession who are seen as experts in their field because like, we, we recognize them as that because of all that they have. The most vocal voices in our society are celebrities and pro athletes and those who have much and seem like we consider that to be the pinnacle of human achievement. Yet, Jesus would have certainly not fell into that category. This, we, we, we don't tend to vote for poor presidents. We don't tend to go to conferences where, we, as the church, we don't tend to go to conferences where the ones speaking at those are just faithful men and women of God in small contexts. To some degree, the world always has and always will equate legitimacy with wealth and possession. And I'm not saying this to discredit anyone. Certainly, I'm guilty of the same. And in some cases, there are those with, with all of that who their voices rightly should be heard. But it's important to note that Jesus would not have fell into that category. Two considerations based on that I'd give you today. One, don't discredit the wisdom of humble, simple followers of Jesus. That is a mistake. Perhaps instead of going and, and buying or pre-ordering the newest flashy book on parenting, consider pursuing and seeking the wisdom of the godly mother who has continued to be faithful in that endeavor under the scenes and under the radar. We tend to be drawn to the former, but Scripture sins tends to tell us that some of the, the most wise people there are to speak into these things in the world are simply faithful, simple followers of Jesus. Number two, don't despair of the reality that Christ is likely calling you to just a simple, faithful life as well. I'm going to make a bold statement, but bear with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, more than likely you are not called to have great wealth, possession, or influence. Just statistically speaking, God values humility and weakness because his power and his love were made known through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like the death and resurrection of Jesus through that, through the gospel, Death and resurrection become a picture of our life. And they seem to be attributes that God values. And content, Jesus continues to say this over and over again. Not only does he model such a life, but he tells us that the last will be first. The meek will inherit the earth. And we can hear those things and drink a coffee cup with those on the side. But yet, we drink that coffee in pursuit of all that we desire to possess and earn for ourselves. The gospel calls us to a different way of life. Paul not only boasts in this simplicity, but he goes on to describe that as godly sincerity. Paul spoke that which was true. No manipulation in his voice. He wasn't trying to draw a crowd. Others sought to tickle the ears of the masses, but Paul simply desires to teach the words of Christ to all he encountered. And to the world, that equaled offended. But to the Spirit-led Christian, the simple teaching of God's word will equal conviction. And the Spirit then empowers us to live repentant lives. The teaching of God's word, the mere reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word will always lead to two results. The world will always be offended by as much, and the people of God will always be convicted by as much. And the gift of God being the Holy Spirit is that, the, but because of Him, that conviction 
is holy and good and leads to repentance, conforming our life to the very image of Christ. Paul's life was not only simple in his possessions, but it was simple in his relationships. He desired to sincerely point others to Jesus, to know nothing but Christ. He was honest, transparent, and focused on this regard, to this regard. In chapter 2 of Corinthians, he explain, of 2 Corinthians, he explains to the church that true leadership is not about status, but about pointing others to Jesus. It's not about being impressive, but it's about pointing people to the impressiveness of the gospel. That's why he, 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 explain, he wants to explain to the church that there is a reason why God strategically calls humble leaders, why he lifted up somebody like Paul and not these men who sought to make much of themselves. Because it, point, it, like it wasn't about Paul being impressive, but pointing to the impressive gospel. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, he describes this when he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says we are the aroma of Christ. Sought, Paul desired to, he wanted to, to, this guy wanted to smell like Jesus that the world might know the one who is impressive. He says godly sincerity, they live with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. The wisdom of the world just did not guide Paul. He had lived that life and it was no longer appealing. He had saw the emptiness and despair that it led to. Paul rode on the way to Damascus is a broken man with a hurt and painful soul with hurts that he couldn't bear to anybody because the ways of the world had let him down time and time again. And so the ways of the world did not define success for Paul. When the Lord rescued him, it changed the way he saw the world. His eyes were opened, and no longer did the wisdom of the world drive him. Paul lived simply because it strategically allowed him to focus on that which mattered most. Life becomes simple as the most important things become the most important things, and all else becomes minimal in response to that. You live not by earthly wisdom, but in contrast, Paul says, but by grace. Paul's life was not rooted in what he owned or even how he felt. But in the grace of God, it was the grace of God that, grant, that had been granted to him. That's what his life was rooted in. It didn't matter his job or his, his, his hobbies or his house. All things were centered around and saturated in the truth of the gospel. That he had received grace by faith, and everything that he did flowed from that. He describes this in chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure, this gospel inheritance is what he's speaking of. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, 
struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He describes to them, we have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking of our broken humanity. Paul acknowledges, like, you, you feel like I'm the, uh, humble in, in stature, like I'm not that impressive. Yeah, like I'm fully aware of that, absolutely. I carry this treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul's point is that God had, the work God was doing in him was to make much of the Lord, not of Paul. That's the reason for the humble vessel. It's the reason for the simple life because his life was made glorious not on his accomplishments, but on the accomplishments of Christ. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. For we, our lives are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested, may be known through our life, through our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. Self-sacrifice is part of our life. But by God's grace, it leads to life for you. The Christian life is a life of continually laying down what is best for us, for the good of others. And in that, the cross is testified too. And Paul explains that he lives this way, and then he says, and supremely so toward you. Supremely so towards you. In godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. And remember, he's speaking to the church. He says, these things are important. I've lived in this way, and supremely so to the church. Many would come with criticisms. Visions of grandeur and great abilities. Yet a false shepherd can always be revealed when the time comes to lay down their lives for the sheep. And the cost of being faithful to God's call has no appeal to them. Paul points out that the life he lives in Christ, he is sought to live for the good of the people of God, that he might testify to Christ in the laying down of his life even in the midst of his persecution. And speaking of like, Paul talks in Corinth about, and the Corinthians about coming to a place where they despaired of life itself. Yet, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul's gospel simplicity was intentional. In his first letter to the church, he wrote in chapter 11, verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul lived the way he did, that he might reflect Christ, that others might follow him and in turn reflect Jesus. The simplicity of Paul's life modeled the simplicity of Christ's. It reflected the values of the gospel, that being death to self and adoration of God. He valued the simplicity because it pointed the people he discipled toward the message of the gospel. Paul lived out what John said, I must decrease, he must increase. I must become less, he must become more. The gospel not only challenges our values, it better challenge our values. 
but it also transforms us through the Spirit. The reason we need the gospel continuously is that preaching the gospel to ourselves, the gospel continually being revealed through God's Word is power in us, changing us, building us up, conforming us to the very image of God. Jesus' way of life becomes our own as we grow in love and adoration through the Word of God. His way of life becomes our own. The gospel is making us, is is intended to, the word of God makes us more like him. It chips away at that which is hardened. It removes and heals that which is broken because of the everlasting hope that we have in him. And the church is glorious, not because of all that we might accomplish, but because God paid such a glorious price to redeem it. We can sit here today and, and, and just be humbled and find great joy in the reality that we sit here today because of the price that God paid for His bride. That heaven and earth was moved. That He left heaven, came here, paid the ultimate price out of His divine love for us, for those who are His. And the church is glorious because of the price God paid to redeem it, that being Christ. We are a treasure to the world. And that is not a means for us to boast, but it is a means by which we boast in Him. We're a treasure to the world because we are the means through which the gospel is revealed to the broken world. The simple life of the believer points to a different set of values, those of the kingdom which is to come. For the Christian, our greatest possession is the word of God. The guide of our life is the same. The word of God is our greatest possession and it leads us in all things because it's the means through which God shares the values of a greater world that we've been called to live as a reflection of. I want to share one more verse with you as we wrap up today. And it's a verse, again, from 2 Corinthians, but it's as we're getting towards the end of the letter. 11.3, Paul shares his concern for some that this likely isn't going to change anything for. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul makes clear where his boast is found, but he acknowledges some of you, some of you are never going to accept that. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunningness of the enemy, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In the garden, all was as it should be. But Eve was convinced that she, she knew better, that God was holding something back from her. That ultimately, this, in, in the midst of this time of deception, there began to well up in her a passion, a desire. And she was convinced that that passion or desire must be good, like it came from her. You should lean into that which satisfies you. You should do that which you feel is right, as opposed to the word that God has clearly given you. And Paul says, that's going to be true 
for some of you. And it will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. God's word is often not as complicated as it seems. It's just offensive. It's not that the words of God are always that complicated. It's just that they grade up against everything the world values. Whatever issue it is we're dealing with in the world, oftentimes this is true. That we, we can be very confused about gender. How did God make man and woman? What are man and woman meant to do? Can a man be a woman? Can a woman be a man? It all seems real jumbled and complicated. I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's just really offensive what God's word says. Is abortion about the rights of, of the life or is it about the rights of the woman? Who It, it all seems really complicated. But if we're all created in the image of God, like it's really not that complicated. It's just offensive because it's not about what's best for you. It's a call like God's word would call you towards laying down your life for another. That's incredibly offensive. Is marriage complicated? Like is, is marriage just you and, and anybody in the world you'd like to be connected to? Is it a reflective of God? What is marriage? Like our society is so confused about this. It's really not complicated. It's just offensive. Is my, like, if, on, on this weekend where we celebrate the country that we live in, like, praise God for the place that we live in, but is, is country most? Is country more than God? Do I worship this? Or is it just so, like, where does all, again, not complicated, just offensive. Like, we're kingdom people first, and all that we live and do comes from that. All of these things, all the things we wrestle with, it's often not that Scripture's complicated. It's just that the simple truth of God, if we, allow, if we rely solely on God's Word to lead us in all things, it will offend something in you. No believer can go to God's Word, desire for it to drive and lead me in all things by the power of the Spirit, and not come up against a point where I don't like that. That's offensive. That rubs up against something in me that, like Eve, I want to hold to God's word, but I want the apple with the other hand. There's just this, it was just one apple. Like this, there's just this one apple that I would like to have this with this. But if God says no to that, then that's, there it is. That's the, that's the simplicity of God's word. Like Eve, we are led astray. We begin to doubt God and see ourselves as a greater authority. That's the cunningness of the enemy, is that he convinces us that we are a greater authority than God's word. And we can become very passionate about and prideful about the thing that we've become convinced we're a greater authority on. Life becomes simple when Jesus becomes most important. And because in that, his word becomes most important. God, would you make that so? Again, final closing part two, I just want to remind you of a scene from God's Word as we, this is my closing story today. In Jeremiah 29, four through seven, God calls his people to live counterculturally in a simple way. And it's very confusing and frustrating for them. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. God's people were exiled and they desired to revolt and take back power and to take back wealth and power that was due them. What Babylon was, we could revolt and we could become that. 
And yet God has another plan for his people. He has a simple one. In the midst of a culture that is hostile, God tells his people, the, the people of Jerusalem who had been taken into captivity, taken away from their homeland, he says, seek the welfare of the place where I've put you into exile. And his methodology for doing so had nothing to do with acquiring power or wealth. Instead, through his prophet, he calls them to live simple lives that value and reflect the glory of God. These people that are, are ready to go to war, like we're going to take back the homeland, we're going to cling to that which is right and good, and we're going to take back power and influence, God comes to them and he gives them some different instructions. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, have children, marry off your children, and seek and pray for the welfare of the city where I've called you into exile. The Christian life is not a glamorous one, but is one that makes much of the one who is worthy of all praise, of all adoration, of all wealth, of all gifts. If God gives us something, it is intended for his glory. Life becomes simple as he who is most important becomes most important in our lives. Would we pray to that end this morning? God, thank you for this day and for inviting us here into this place where we can come, where we, God, we, we, we sacrifice, we lay down a few hours of our day and we just lay it before you. Uh, Lord, I pray that it might be a sweet gift to you and, and not a, a legalistic act by us. But Lord, we just we want to come before you and acknowledge that we are, we are members of a, of a greater place. We are heirs to the kingdom to come. We are heirs to the throne of grace. We are your children, meant to reflect you here in this place, to push back darkness and to be a light in the midst of darkness. Lord, would we, would we be a simple people? Would we be a people whose greatest possession is your word? Would we value it above all else? And would all else that we have be guided and directed through the way that we are directed through your word? Lord, if you choose to give us great gifts, would we use them for your glory and not for our own status? Lord, if you choose not to, would we be fully content in that, in that way we reflect your very life? You tell us the, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. God, would we be uh, just uh, deliriously thankful if you choose to give us any more than that? Lord, what a, it, what a humbling thought it is that you have given me a home and uh, a bed to lay in and a, a roof that keeps the rain away, and yet you had that not even for yourself. God, would anything above that just be a gift that leads me to great delight in you? And would I be satisfied with less if you would so choose? God, would we live simple lives that make much of you? Thank you for the truth of the gospel that leads us, that gives us hope in the midst of all circumstances. Would all that we have be yours, our time, our relationships, our families, our gifts, would all that we have 
be simply used to make much of you. Holy Spirit, would you make this so in us? You are the most important, Lord. You are the most important thing in our lives. The most important one we could ever look to. And would that become clearer and clearer each day as we walk with you? I ask these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.